Hey everyone, today I'm joined by Tim Vermolin, Professor of Media, Culture and Society at the University of Oslo. Now, along with colleague Robin Vandenacker, he was the first to popularize the term metamodernism with a seminal 2010 article in the Journal of Aesthetics and Culture titled Notes on Metamodernism. Their webzine of the same name, which ran from 2009 to 2016, published numerous articles from various contributors analyzing art and culture through the lens of this new post-postmodern paradigm. 2017 saw the publication of their book, along with co-author Alison Gibbons, Metamodernism, Historicity, Affect, and Depth After Postmodernism, an anthology of essays exploring metamodernism across the arts. Vermoylan continues to write on culture, including as a regular contributor to Freeze magazine. And I'm so happy to have you uh, for some discussion today. I've been wanting to talk uh, about metamodernism for years. I first met you, what, seven years ago, back in 2014, um, uh, in the, uh, went to the Oscillate Metamodernism in the Humanities Conference at Strathclyde and uh, spoke about metamodern religion in that context, uh, flew over to the Amsterdam conference, metamodernism, return of history um, at the Stedelijk. And um, yeah, a lot's kind of happened since then. That was 2014. So um, and at this point with metamodernism as a, as a topic, as a paradigm, as an idea um, over a decade old, I thought it would be really cool to talk about um, just the whole development of the idea, um, where it stands now how you came to it, um, and to talk maybe a little bit about some of the more recent permutations and the directions that it's going. So um, thank you so much. And, um, and yeah, I don't know <laughs> if you have any, of course, of course. So um, yeah, would you maybe, well, you can begin anywhere you like, but if you want to start with exploring or, or discussing a little bit, you know, where metamodernism as a term came from um, the ideas behind it, how you developed it, and uh, what what led to uh, to its origins? I mean, I think that in the 2000s, from the early 2000s onwards, um, I was studying history and then philosophy and then and, and variety of media studies across Holland and the UK, um, and also visited a number of art galleries and museums and I started noticing alongside many 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 others I think it's fair to say and I'm sure you're one of them a set of changes that were quite subtle sometimes quite radical at other times that seemed to suggest that all the stuff that I was being taught at that very moment at university especially stuff around those notions of the end of history or post-structuralism or post-modernism that those changes seem to suggest that the stuff that I was taught at university was no longer really applicable to the reality around me, right? And so the, the theories that I would have thought to use to understand um, cultural phenomena seem to be out of date somehow. And so there was this sense, okay, we need clearly, we need a, a new kind of vocabulary to make sense of the things that we're seeing. And in the simplest way, um, what Robin and Niels van Puka and I, um, back in, in London in 2008, I think we started talking about this, uh, we, we, I think we called it metamodernism, or we first actually called it judo-modernism, and then we called it, I think, something-modernism, and then metamodernism, was, a, was an attempt to name and to find a, a cohesive framework for some of these developments. And when I say cohesive, of course, it doesn't cover everything. Perhaps it covers very little, right? There's always different kinds of movements and sensibilities emerging. 
but it was our attempt to come to terms simply with some of the stuff we were seeing. We were seeing in literature, right? Zadie Smith, Foster Wallace, Jennifer Egan. Uh, we were seeing it in the arts, uh, all the, the return of all those manifestos that you saw in art spaces, the return of a sense of optimism, of utopianism even. We saw in literature, the return of the epic novel. Uh, we saw in, in music, um, which was Niels's uh, field, um, uh, loads of uh, queer folk and a focus on communities and on simple uh, instruments. I remember Coco Rosie being a big thing back then. Um, and generally speaking, a return of a kind of romantic uh, with a big R, romantic sensibility. And so this was an attempt to just give a name and a, and a particular kind of discourse to some of the stuff we were sensing, I guess. Right. Yeah. That, that's the simplest explanation. Yeah. So um, between that article, even in, in 2010 and the book, which came out in 2017, uh, were there various sort of uh, changes, developments that the book struck me as being a lot more about the return of history, though maybe that was always there uh, very strongly at the beginning. But the article um, seemed to have much more about the neo-romantic turn and sort of framing it um, in, in those ways. And were there were there ways that you sort of were adjusting the framework even even uh, say between 2010 2015 2016 or did it seem to maintain a certain kind of basic continuity i mean i would say but i mean you've you've been reading it along so i'm guessing you might have something to say about this this as well but i would say both in i think the the observations that we we made in 28 and then slowly you know it takes a while for an academic article to get published so i think we wrote it in 28 and then it finally got published in 210 after peer review and everything um, but i think those observations we felt in 2017 and i think i still feel today mostly still stand there are changes across the arts and those changes seem to signify they seem to signal and indicate and perhaps celebrate and also warn us of political changes that are running parallel to them, right? And so I think those observations which pertain to a new sense of urgency, a new sense of hope, a new sense of sincerity, perhaps also a new sense of desperation and the particular ways in which those sensibilities were affected right? Which is both a, a movement of going somewhere else whilst at the same time having that that doubt, that doubt perhaps that, that we were all trained to have from a young age, and I think which is very important, that was constantly held in check or held back by that doubt. I think that tension, I think I still see in, in, in so many of the uh, phenomena around me, both in terms of the arts and the political culture that they, and politics here with a big piece of the, mm. the more geopolitical, political, economical sense, they still stand, right? So I'm, I'm quite happy still in many ways with some of those observations. I think that they can, uh, they can still be used and applied to contemporary modes. What changed is that we had a number of conferences. For example, we had the Oscillate conferences. We had the Stedelijk Museum conference. Other people started writing articles. And so what, what changed is discourse. You get new insights, so you add to it, you, you rethink. For example, I think it's obvious that that article 2.8 uh, was written on the back of Obama's election. And so there was, and also on the back of the financial crisis. And I think Robin and I both had this sense that perhaps something was to change for the better, 
right? We figured that maybe Obama could make a change. We figured that the financial crisis in 2008 would actually also enact some kind of meaningful changes as right. to um, the way in which capitalism interferes or dominates or colonizes our life, that there would be perhaps a more humane capitalism or, I mean, Robinism is, is Marxist, or <laughs> that we can get rid of capitalism, right, which is not my idea necessarily. But in any case, we felt that some meaningful changes might take place. And so the article was written as a series of observations that we tried to make sense of, right, all these different things that were happening that we just put on a big pound said there are some common denominators here and they have to do with, we probably will return to this, with structure of feeling, with sensibility. Um, and we felt that something might change. And I think in 2017, it became obvious that not only did those changes not materialize, that a, a whole different set of changes materialized that <laughs> I think we can all safely agree were tremendously disastrous. So yeah. um, in that sense, it's, there is definitely a, a sea change, right? 2008 is written after Obama is elected. The book comes out after Donald Trump is elected. Mm. So that is a massive difference. Sure. Well, so yeah, speaking, picking up the idea of the structure of feeling, um, when the first article appeared, it was sort of this, um, you know, oh, we're getting an intimation, we're getting a sense that this thing's kind of here, it's not really fully formed, it's kind of inchoate, but it's on the horizon, it's coming. Um, and now, you know, that we're kind of 10 years out from that, uh, do you feel like that structure of feeling, and you can, I'd love it if you kind of get, got into what that, it, you know, is and how you, how you describe it, but do you feel like it, it did arrive in the way that you kind of imagined or is it because one of the questions I'd have is sort of like you know one of the ways of framing metamodernism um, especially as opposed to postmodernism is talking about the dominant structure of feeling in the society and I guess my question would be is metamodernism the dominant structure of feeling or is it is it still maybe even as it was then sort of coming into uh you know greater um uh well, greater dominance, or at least just greater, uh, you know, uh, reality, greater, greater presentation, um, visibility in the world. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I will come to structure of feeling. I have, there's two answers to this question. The first is, yes, I do think metamodernism, which was emerging, I would imagine, or becoming dominant in 2008, is the dominant structure of feeling, but it depends on where we're looking, right? So it depends on where you're asking for. I'm writing, mm. and this is very important, and we wrote this uh, from the get-go, but especially we, we emphasized this in 2017, the book. Both Robin and I, we grew up in Holland, right, which is a very specific context with a very specific history. We are white, we are male, right? I mean, maybe we're not much of men, but we are men somehow. <laughs> and so it's very important to think to acknowledge this perspective. We are talking about a very distinct sensibility in a very distinct place. I don't know how the sensibility fares in cultural contexts that I know very little about. For example, I don't know how it would work in the Arab world. I don't know how it works in China. My guess is that there is some um, overlap because you know, some of our, our articles were translated into uh, Farsi, uh, for example, and into um, to Arab and into uh, Mandarin. So I'm guessing that there is some sense of overlap, but I have no clue how that really translates. So it's, I do think it's dominant. It's dominant definitely here in Europe. And I'm 
guessing from what I know from American culture, it is dominant in America, but I don't know if it's dominant everywhere. As to this notion of the structure of feeling, and this is <clears throat> quite important. So this is a notion that we took from Raymond Williams and we took it from Raymond Williams first because we love Raymond Williams. We thought he was an incredible um, literary and cultural theorist and thinker, but also because Frederick Jameson co-opts this notion from um, Raymond Williams to discuss postmodernism. And so of course, so the, the notion of the structure of feeling is a, um, um, Ben Cranfield at one point put it like this, is a, a feeling that structures, right? So we liked the notion because it's, it's, it's for Williams, it's this, this moment in culture that we all feel, right? That we all sense something, um, it's, struct it's structural, right? It's, it's everywhere, and yet we can't really pin it down. It has this, the fleetingness, the intangibility of a feeling. And so it's not yet hegemony, it's not yet, ideology it's this fleeting this sense that nonetheless we are all experiencing and by all i'm again thinking here of all in particular reasons or in particular moments in time or perhaps even in particular generations right but so this this feeling and ben cranfield then says it's a feeling that structures which i like and um, there's this noel uh, carroll i'm guessing you know of is an american philosopher and he has this article uh, where he distinguishes emotion from mood and I think the notion of Raymond Williams' structure of feeling comes close to this notion of mood, where Carroll says uh, an emotion is short-lived, it's punctured, right? It's, uh, it's something that comes about from an externality. So, for example, if you now throw uh, garbage out and, uh, uh, into nature, and then I get angry, right? I say, ah, oh, you're, you know, you're ruining our planet. And so that's an emotion. It's something that responds to an externality that I feel is impinging on my sense of self and the world. But then when you say, I'm really sorry, Right, maybe. And then it's I say, okay, you know, we can be friends again. But if I get up in a foul mood, perhaps because I went to bed really late last night, which I did, my kids were up all night and up very early, or because I ate, I don't know, McDonald's or some terrible junk food, right? And I feel really off today, then regardless of how nice you are to me, this mood pervades, right? No, Carol writes, it's a kind of a filter and it draws sort of everything in its orbit and sort of meshes up. And so the structure of feeling in Williams' sense is similar to this mood. And there's one important thing that Williams writes, and he writes this in 54 when he begins writing about Michael Oram, um, which is that he came to this notion because he said, look, if you, if you have an artwork, say, or a book or any product of its time, if you analyze it, he writes this in the times of structuralism, of course, and you take everything apart, you've got the whole structure laid out, there's this residue this leftover that all the products of this time seem to share this leftover residue. That's the structure of feeling. It's the stuff that no one has put in, but is there, right? And I think I wrote somewhere, or I don't know if we did in this book or somewhere else, like with whiskey, right? Whiskey that's made at, uh, at the Isles is saltier than whiskey that's made at uh, in the Highlands, just because the air is saltier. And so that filters in. And so that is the structure of feeling. Susan Sontag, of course, also uses it in Notes on Camp. But as said, we come to it also because um, Jameson uses it. And postmodernism means many, many things, <laughs> right? In many very different contexts. Um, and it can be a critical tool. It can be a theory. It can be a structure of feeling. It can be an emancipatory tale. It can be about minor errors and so on and so forth. But for Jameson, for better or worse, it is mostly the structure of feeling. It's a particular cultural dominant. And he describes this cultural dominant as the senses of an end. There's in this, he says after the fall of the Berlin Wall, 
um, and the collapse of the Soviet empire, there's all these senses of an end that go about. And I lived through these in Holland. So I, was, I felt them intimately. The sense that there is, as Margaret Thatcher says, no alternative or that there is, as Punk said, no future. This idea that this is it could be great, could be terrible, but we're kind of stuck here. Francis Fukuyama very prematurely calls this the end of history. And so that's a structure of feeling. And Jameson says all these art forms are completely different, right? They have nothing to do with each other in terms of aesthetic register or devices use of politics. But that's not the point. The point is, he says, that they all share this residue, this leftover thing, this salt. And so this was our starting point in many ways, because this was the postmodernism that we felt was no longer adequate for us to understand the world around us. The idea was that this salt, right, that we had moved, you could say, from the Isles to the Highlands in, in some way, there was a different residue. And so metamodernism is the attempt and the name then for, I guess, this residue, this mm. stuff that is in all of those cultural products and all those political movements, regardless of what they have in mind, regardless of whether it's the Tea Party, which was um, gaining traction when we were writing this, or the uh, or Occupy or the Indignados, right? Mm -hmm. They are sharing some of that salt, even though their aims are obviously entirely different. The extent to which, if we think of the local, right, this sort of nationalist focus on the local is present, but also within food cultures, and I would say the left and the progressive, there is a focus on locality. Completely different, and yet at the same time, they share some mm. kind of sentiment. So it's, it's this, this structure of feeling, this mood, this sensibility that we were after. Have I, have I made clear what it, what it is? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, so then say a little bit about what does, come, you know, as you say, you know, history comes roaring back. Um, so what, what comes back, roaring back with metamodernism with that return of history? I mean, it, to be to be clear, history never ended. Right. right? I think we all probably <laughs> right. both agree. Right. It, it's, it never ended. As but we the, know, sen the sense of the end. Before. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. These senses of an end that that we're all around. Um, I think it's a variety of things. Um, it's definitely a series, I would imagine, of events. Some people say 9-11, which I, Robin and I have always doubted because it seemed to be creating a move inwards, but definitely the financial crisis um, was a contributing factor. Definitely, and very importantly, I think we can agree that the ecological crisis is a factor here, um, where we are understanding that the ways in which we have, both financially and um, um, ecologically, the ways in which we've been living our lives and treating both others and the world around us is unsustainable. And, 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 and you do have, I do need to give a caveat here, uh, which is very important. I just read this wonderful quote by someone, I don't know who, who wrote that dystopian fiction is nothing more than when what happens to marginalized people is suddenly happening to, to the West in a way. And I do think this is, this is what we're talking about here, right? People who worked in factories from when they were a child, in, I don't know, Bangladesh or, or China or closer to home, I don't know, Poland, they always knew that capitalism was tremendously unfair. People who saw their livelihoods in their homes being washed over by floods, who had sinkholes every now and then, who loads of tornadoes and whatever, they always knew that the way in which we treated the world was unsustainable. But of course, it's the moment 
that those people who still seem to be deciding uh, where money goes, etc., when it hits them, when this dystopian <laughs> reality also becomes theirs, that's the moment where they say, oh, well, uh, maybe we should, uh, we should change some shit, right? So it's, I think it's an important caveat. Mm-hmm. It's not something new, but it's the traveling of particular realities to um, um, the capital center, you could say. So that's one. I think second, of course, social media, web 2.0 changes everything, right? That the moment that there's no longer a gatekeeper, the moment that every single person has the possibility to share their opinion and to be heard, the moment that you can sign a petition within minutes on Twitter for the most ridiculous, but also perhaps the most important things, that changes everything, right? So I do think we often, I don't want to turn this into some kind of teleological narrative where technology changes everything, but it does in the same way that the moment that the car comes into play and that distances between cities and distances between countries are suddenly made so tiny and you see this collapse of the world almost into one another, or the moment that telephone lines and so on and so forth, this technological shift obviously comes into play as well because it allows for a new way of interaction and it allows for different voices to be heard. And then finally, a generational desire, I think is very important. Um, I don't necessarily know or think, it's not this, I don't want to create either this Marxist picture of where the material world steers all cultural shifts or where, or this this techno-biased image where technology makes everything happen. I do think there is also a sentiment amongst the new generation of people where they, they're just fed up with the old. This was, I don't know how you felt that, but when we were at the Stedelijk um, and we heard Fukuyama talk, and I thought it was very brave of Fukuyama to come to that event because Indeed. he knew that everyone else there was not a fan, right? <laughs> that everyone else there was basically both left wing and did not really- I remember him before. watching the video of him like falling through space and just sort of right? being like, this is quite a scene to witness. <laughs> Yeah, constantly falling on that needle. I thought this was really something. Yeah. This uh, La Chute de Fukuyama by Camille de, de Toledo, um, who wrote a wonderful book, uh, by the way, Coming of Age at the End of History. Um, but I, I thought that was quite interesting that, that he seemed to just say, look, nothing really changed. People are just bored, right? Which I'm guessing you and I would agree is probably a gross misreading of why people started um, <laughs> rebelling or started forming new alliances. And yet, it's also probably not entirely untrue, because I don't think Foster Wallace was thinking of any of the ecological or financial injustices. I think he was just thinking, this is unsustainable for me. I'm I'm bored with this shit. And so I do think it's those three factors. There's a series of geopolitical, financial, ecological shifts, a feeling that the world is unsustainable. I think there is this this ability, this affordance that social media and the various new ways of being in touch with people and and being heard. Uh, And I think it's a generational desire. So I do think those sort of three facets come together. And maybe, I realize I'm talking for a really long time. Really sorry, uh, Brenda. I hope this is okay, but stop me at any moment. No, the point is for you to talk, so. Okay, no good. I mean, (laughs) I feel, um, I don't know. There is this work that you know well by Annabel Daou, and I love this work, the Lebanese American artist, which side are you on? 
for me, this work in a way is a microcosm, I guess, of what we're talking about. It's this work, Which Side Are You On?, which is an old 1950s television with a Mashriba screen on it, still image, and on this television you hear the artist asking people, which side are you on? And people are really scrambling to answer. So some people make jokes, sunny side up or whatever. Some people are very serious, but everyone has that moment of hesitation. Which side am I on? And for me, this is in a way the key, and this is key in two parts. The reason that this question is so difficult to answer is first that you don't have any parameters. So it could be about anything. This could be which side are you on when it comes to football or which side are you on when it comes to humanity or human rights or the, the environment. And so the moment that you say, I'm supporting, uh, I don't know, uh, Arsenal or uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and then the next person says, I really, I'm supporting the side of, uh, of, uh, of the environment. You know, you feel like a prick, right? Because then you've really just, you've said this stupid thing. And so parameters are open. So that's very difficult. It's, there's no guidance. There's no sort of frame within which you are asked to make those decisions. And the second is, of course, the famous uh, Leotardian uh, parable of uh, Deferrand, where he says you have this archipelago, which is how we were all in a way trained at school, right? Especially if you grew up in Holland, and I'm guessing in America as well, um, where Lyotard said, you know, all those, those terrible, ghastly things that those utopian narratives, that ideological meta-narratives created for us, where you have one truth and you all believe in it and you're willing to fight for the truth regardless of the cost, right? Uh, Robespierre, Saint-Just and the Enlightenment and French Revolution, the pogroms and Soviet uh, uh, Union, the Nazis, obviously, with the Holocaust, all of that was terrible. So he says we shouldn't do that. We should see of ourselves as an admiral on a ship sailing between the islands in archipelago. And we understand it's sort of Wittgensteinian game that every island has its own rules and we shouldn't go on, on land. No, we should understand that different places have different truths. We should understand that perhaps more things than one could be good, right? Or could be bad, that there are just different sides that all have their own values. And so the question that Annabel Daou asks, and that is for me that central question of that residue of that metamodern sensibility is, what do you do if you perceive, it could be also happening, but I don't know. In any case, what do you do if you perceive the ship to be sinking? You have to choose a side. How do you, how do you cope with that? How do you deal with that? How do you try and make sense and give direction and meaning to your life at that very moment? You know, it's not one side is necessarily better, and yet you have to somehow pertain to this new reality. And I'm guessing in a way with those three things, those change, those crises and those injustices and the social media affordances and the generational desire, it pertains to this sentiment. What do you do when you feel that the ship is sinking? Yeah. And I mean, and I would say that's the metamodern sensibility for me in a way. Yeah. And with all these events that you're talking about, especially the ecological crisis, and with the sense of urgency, with the sense of needing to make a decision, uh, it seems like there's been a return to various kinds of grand narrative thinking, because it's sort of like, well, we have to do something. And if there's these, if the ship is sinking, you know, we have to be on some side and we have to do, we can't just sort of sit back in the kind of uh, comfort of 
our kind of postmodern luxury and just sort of, okay, well, whatever, and be apathetic about it. We have to make a commitment to something. And so it seems to force a kind of, um, well, idealism of some kind, which you, you know, even spoke about in the first article about this pragmatic idealism. Do you feel, feel like that's a fair uh, notion that there's a sort of return to grand narrative thinking or, um, or utopian thinking of some kind? It's sort of like, well, choose an island and then in some ways that'll be something that you're striving for because, you know, we can't stay where we are. Yeah, yes. Well, again, yes and no. I feel sorry. I keep saying yes and no, but I do think yes and no. I mean, first, I think it's important to to add something to your description of postmodernism here as apathetic, which, of course, is not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. Right. The sense of an ending doesn't necessarily mean indifference. It is all there's also an incredibly critical approach. Mm -hmm. Right. In this notion of the archipelago, there's a very critical approach and also quite useful, which is that you can suddenly allow for completely diverging discourses to coexist, which is a, a beautiful belief, I think, right? That the incommensurable can, can coexist in this model of the, uh, of the archipelago. So it's not just apathetic. I think it's a particular notion of the world um, um, that indeed allows you not to take a side. Right. And I think today it's even if, if someone accuses you of not taking a side, I think it's also they're berating you, they're criticizing you. Right. Mm -hmm. You're staying out of it. And it will often be associated, I think, rightly with having privilege, with not having to take a side. But so in any case, so that's the first just minor, perhaps, amendment to what you said. Yes, I do think uh, here comes the yes that we are then thinking about a particular kind of utopianism or pragmatic utopianism. And, and a return of a grand narrative in some sort, but, and this is very, very important, it isn't the grand narrative yet, I, I should probably add, um, that we saw in, the, um, in, in modernity, right? That we saw in those large meta-narratives that would steer and frame all of our meaning-making and give right. direction to our lives entirely. It seems to be a grand narrative in spite of, you might say, or it seems to be, we have to, but oh dear. Is this going to be something? And I do think right. that what we see now a lot is this knee-jerk reaction, um, which is the, the meta-modern. Um, this is the metoxis. This is the movement between opposite poles where you are both, both those ends, and because you cannot be both of those ends at the same time, neither of them, you're both on two islands at the same time and on neither of them, is a sort of a desperate movement between, right? And I do think this is the the dark side, you might say, of this, which is Donald Trump, where Donald Trump will say, this is true today. And he will say the opposite is true tomorrow. And it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant also to his electorate. They don't really care because they say, yeah, less taxes. Yeah, they say the next day, better schools, right? Even though probably it would be the taxes that would <laughs> pay for those mm -hmm. better schools. And so it is also this sort of absolutist relativism that I think we see a lot with demagogues and populists right now. Mm. So it's, yes, there is this forward move. Yes, there is a return to those narratives that can explain entirely. But those narratives are quite explicitly inconsistent, incohesive, forever unfinished. They cannot really work. It's not a puzzle that works. And this is quite important because it's going to mean probably tragedy for all of us, because of course tragedy for the Greeks is nothing else than this, right? It's a puzzle that doesn't fit. It's uh, 
uh, Antigone and uh, Creon, which I always think is the best example, Antigone and Creon both being completely in their right. Antigone wanting uh, family law, Creon wanting state law. Cannot come together, even though they're both right. And I think this is sort of the similar tension that we're seeing here um, emerge is this, we, yeah, on the left, I would say is sort of a, an informed naivety and on the right and the populist side, this weird absolutist relativism, which is terrifying. Do you, um, what do you make of the idea that what we're actually seeing, at least in some part on the right, is actually just postmodernism finally uh, getting to uh, kind of conservative populations of, and, and political thought um, in a way that it had already sort of as a wave kind of passed over the left. I mean, in some ways, I don't think it's unfair to say that postmodernism as a paradigm was mostly articulated by people on the left, um, especially Marxists or Marxian thinkers, um, and definitely had sort of a, I mean, of course, it becomes sort of the boogeyman of people on the right about just sort of this, you know, oh, the postmodern cultural uh, Marxists and things like that. But there is still also a kind of truth that it, it seems to me, especially as it was expressed in the academy, as sort of um, used in emancipatory leftist ways uh, by using kind of this tool of, well, let's critique absolute truth, let's show how it's culturally bounded and relative, et cetera. Do you think that some of those ideas have just finally sort of percolated to the to the right so that now Donald Trump or someone like him can kind of just use this post-truth tool that was originally developed maybe for emancipatory ends and now is being used for oppressive ends? Does that does that paradigm seem uh, valid in any way or or do you see I mean, the Donald me, Trump phenomenon very, very much as a meta modern thing? I, yeah, for me, Donald Trump is entirely meta modern in the way that he uses some of the um, of the, of really, I think of the advances uh, that postmodernism and um, post-structuralism have given us, which is that truth is relative, which I think is a very important understanding. doesn't mean necessarily that truth is, is gone, right? That there is no truth. But I think it's an awareness of the context specificity that a lot of things seem to have, right? Again, the islands. Something might be true um, over there, over your and your side of the, uh, of the ocean, that isn't true here. It's, it's entirely conceivable. It probably is the case indeed. So truth is depending, dependent on context in many ways. And I think actually what is happening now with, uh, with populism is that they take that, they take this understanding, but they don't take it necessarily to then just indeed say, oh, we have to be, we have to be cautious with uh, saying things. No, no, they use that relativism precisely to articulate absolute new truths, but just for a day. Right, so it's that's why this absolutist relativism is so important and so scary. Is it takes that in in the same way I think that many um, emancipatory practices do take it. They take the relativism, but they match it in this case with a a very very scary uh, absolute truth. Mm. So it is precisely the relativism that allows them to postulate a new, often absolutely ridiculous and provably false truth. This sort of particular structure that the relativism precisely allows you to make a claim that is absolute, if only for a moment. Mm. Yeah, and um, if that is liberating, I also think that we have seen that this is, you know, quite terrifying. Sure. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of areas I'd love to go into all that and and explore and get your thought because I have. I'm really interested in the ways that we see um, while we might see a certain dominant 
postmodern structure of uh, or I'm sorry, metamodern structure of feeling. There's also a lot of residual postmodernism, and there's a lot of ways that I think that postmodernism sort of only comes to dominance, as you say, in different in the same way that metamodern sort of comes to dominance in certain areas in 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 you know in a non uh, you know, in a, in a highly differentiated way, let's say that in some areas it's, it's very pronounced and others not so much, I think similarly postmodern thinking. And, and in the same way that like, I, I think about how government, like if you think about a, a court proceeding or, uh, you know, people still wear the wigs, right. Cause like, uh, culture, the cultural trends and fads and styles kind of take so much longer to percolate up into highly institutionalized, you know, uh, formal environments, I see a lot of what you're talking about in some ways is sort of like, especially in the political scene, it took that much longer for postmodernism finally to really um, immerse our, our institutions and our political system to the point where we could finally have like a fully postmodern president, say. Um, and yet at the same time, I see a lot of what you're talking about in terms of how these things are working. In a, um, but anyway, that's just my two cents. Well, well, maybe if I can say one thing, sure. one thing to that, because I, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I do think it's important that what we see with, for example, Tony Blair, right, in the 1990s, um, a new labor, and I think the thick of it, the uh, Amanda Yanucci show, does such a great job of ridiculing this. I think that's where we see postmodern politics at play. It is where you no longer believe in any grand narrative or story, but like Tony Blair, and this is what's so good about the thick of it, instead you go to all of the, the people in your society and you ask them what they think should be happening, right? And they say, well, I think uh, this should be, I don't know, whatever. They say all kinds of weird stuff, and then you create some kind of policy on the basis of that shit, right? That is the complete lack of an overarching narrative mm -hmm. and allowing to people like you and me to have a say. For me, that was a sort of a, a sense. And I think Veep, which is also by Yanucci, is in a way still, that's a leftover for me of a postmodern um, post um, um, sentiment. This idea that politicians are also just people opportunistic people with no sort of ideological backbone or just trying to do some shit, right? And they're always running behind the facts and things like that. I think importantly, what we see, I think now if you'd make a show, it'd be probably something more like House of Cards, where you actually believe that there is some kind of secret, secret shit happening behind the scenes, right? So you no longer, you believe that there is a narrative, you just don't know what it is. There's a kind mm. of epistemic dispossession in a way. Mm. You have the feeling the truth is is somewhere there. There is some kind of truth, but it's just you don't have access to it. Mm -hmm. So for me, this would be that would be a kind of distinction. Well, I, uh, I, yeah, yeah. I wanted to um, pick up on some of these threads too, because uh, in terms of the the topic of sort of the development of metamodernism over the years, um, so I noticed something kind of shift in the way that the discourse was being uh, you know engaged and um, deployed. Uh, around three years ago, um, and, and actually in, in 2017, um, another book was published uh, as well on metamodernism, or at least with metamodern in the title, there's the Hanzi books that came on the scene with the metamodern guide to politics. And there's been sort of a, a shift in the way that the conversation has gone um, using the frame of metamodernism with explicit reference to your work. Um, and picking it up and in some ways uh, sort of applying it in these kinds of uh, utopian, pragmatic, idealistic projects, um, political metamodernism, as they call it. 
Um, but more than just the Hanzi books, I mean, there have been, you know, uh, whether it's Lena Rachel Anderson with Meta Modernity and Thomas Bjorkman, uh, Jonathan Rousen, Lehman Pascal just published uh, through P Perspectiva Press, an anthology called Meta Modernity. Um, there's a lot of uh, people engaging with the term metamodernism and metamodern that has really seemed like kind of a, a kind of, I don't know, almost renaissance or an explosion of, of interest in the topic. Um, it's gained uh, a lot of interest uh, in these kind of new circles that are bringing in um, new kinds of uh, kind of threads to the, to the conversation. Um, and I just kind of wanted to get your perspective on that in terms of um, how you understand your relationship to this kind of, uh, you know, new uh, engagement with the term and, um, you know, whether whether this excites you or brings some anxiety. Uh, I mean, the fact that in many ways, the idea of metamodernism really, despite also the fact that, you know, others were using the term before you and Robin were using it, there is sort of a lineage back to that you know, ultimately that 2010 article and everything that's sort of come from it. Um, so I'm just curious about uh, these new developments in metamodernism and what your take is on them. I mean, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I don't know, as you said, the term is, is really much older than, uh, than 2010. And, and I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, Keen. I think what is so what is so what worries me maybe or what is so important for me to state clearly is that in a way metamodernism is a kind of a placeholder, right? For Robin and me, it's just it seems like the most useful term because of the meta and the metoxis of Plato to describe what we were seeing around us to, to begin creating a kind of a critical vernacular to make sense of those changing cultural phenomena and the political shifts that they signified. So it's a tool in a way. And if another term would be better, maybe there's already one around, that would better describe or better capture those developments, then I would say, let's go to that other term. For me, metamodernism seems to be the, the, best, the best of the worst. Like it's at the moment, it seems to me the most useful label to put on those developments to begin understanding it mm -hmm. but it's irrelevant in a way right what i'm interested in is people that are somehow trying to make sense trying to figure out what is happening there right what are the distinct tendencies and developments that we see and how could we begin to make sense of them and indeed perhaps eventually develop a but this is not, not as an academic my my field right i'm not equipped i think to do that uh, with the skill sets I have that are very limited, um, but perhaps eventually create a progressive politics from there. But that's not my field. Mm -hmm. So I'm, if people are making progressive politics and they use that term because they, they also think it's a useful term to, to create a new politics, then great. If they use another term, then great. That, I mean, that's, I think, up for, for anyone to do. But I don't think it's the metamodern itself that can be a progressive politics because the metamodern as Robin and I and Alison in any case and Niels before that conceived of it was simply observing what was already around us, right? I didn't sure. bring anything new into the world. Um, I, I think it's literally giving a name to stuff that most of us had, had been seeing, had been talking about, had been sort of debating at conferences and on blogs. And so it was something that's around and you give a name and you try and give a sort of a vocabulary to these developments. 
but it is in itself something new. So I think if there's a politics that takes some of those observations to create a new progressive politics, that's wonderful. And if they call it metamodern or whatever, that's fine. But I don't think it should be necessarily that the metamodern itself should be seen as something new that can bring about those changes. Do you understand the distinction? Because sure. it is already there, right? It's sure. not something, it's not a new philosophy. Right. That's, that's the important thing. Metamodernism in that way, it wasn't a program, right? It is not like materialism, uh, the philosophical, which I think is a program. And you could actually use that program to create a new kind of Spinozist, vitalist way of living together because it brings something new into the world. And metamodernism in our um, sense did not bring something new into the world it just created a vocabulary for what was already there again yeah, well, right. if you someone is creating from that vocabulary some a new program then that's fine I, I, uh, yeah and that's i guess it's that dialectical element i'm interested in because it's sort of like you were describing cultural phenomena that were there in a descriptive way and gave it some terms like sincere irony for example is a crucial one um you know pragmatic idealism um, and naming the sort of neo-romantic turn and and a and a utopian striving that's aware of itself, et cetera. And then with, by introducing those ideas into the culture, you you allowed people to then sort of name that kind of elusive structure of feeling that you were able to speak to. And then they were able to use those terms and sort of apply them arguably, because um, I know that one of the things that struck me so much about finding metamodernism uh, when I did was that even just the, the idea of talking about, you know, post irony or being sincere in some way, the idea of talking about, um, you know, what David Foster Wallace was talking about in the old untrendy human truths in a way that wasn't just kitsch or, or pastiche or sort of, you know, this was, um, it was encouraging and it was like, oh, there's, there, this is somehow justified or, or uh, acceptable in some way. And at least what I feel like I've seen is a lot of people come to um, a realization by having this sort of framework to to frame their their sensibility within it. It sort of it creates this dialectic where now it's like, OK, well, let's sort of use these. Let's let's put these into practice. And so arguably, um, you know, I think you could view, say, whether it's the Hanzi books or these other forms of political uh, uh, programs as sort of being very self-consciously aware of we're going to do some kind of a grand narrative thing here, but we're going to be highly aware of the fact that we're doing it deeply self-conscious. And, um, you know, we're going to be doing it in a sincerely ironic way, which to me seems like an enactment of some of these ideas once they're sort of put out into the world. So even though, yeah, I'm not, uh, they're certainly distinct in what your project has been and how these folks are using it, but there seems to be continuity there. Um, but, but maybe, maybe you would disagree or maybe you would attenuate that. I just, I, th I think I, I know too little of mm. it because even though um, the, uh, many of these texts use the same name, in a way it's a different field, I guess, from mm. what I'm interested in also. And I think, I mean, that, well, there is one caution, I think, which is important for me, which is that just as Jameson said that for him, postmodernism was a cultural logic of something else, which is namely uh, late capitalism. I don't think that metamodernism should be seen in isolation from um, some of those political economic systems, right? I, I think that it's, um, I agree. For me, it was, I remember reading Zadie Smith and thinking this is, 
wow, or Ben Lerner and thinking this is changing everything or Roberto Bolaño and feeling this utopian spirit, right? So I understand that sentiment very well. And again, I think it was evident in that 2010 article. Um, but I don't think we should, I mean, they are all related to capitalism. They're not loose from it. That is not to say that they cannot somehow enact changes, right? This is why we originally had judo modernism in mind, where Foucault talks about judo as something that takes the energy that's already there to redirect it. So there is no new energy. There is no actual metaphysical thing going on. There aren't some secret layers. Everything is there, and yet you you redirect it, right? You take over the energy in existence to show to push it into a, a different direction. And I think that so there is the possibility that all of those cultural phenomena and sensibilities might also help us develop new political systems or economic systems. But it's, it's, I just want to, want to add that caution, yeah. right? And that's yeah. also why I'm so adamant on making clear that if the Occupy, uh, Wall Street and the Enignados were for me an expression of a metamodern structure of feeling, that the Tea Party and Donald Trump are two, right? Yeah. That if I yeah. say that pragmatic idealism, which allows us to build greener houses or to, um, to reduce our carbon footprint or to be kinder to people around us, that if that is part what I, of what I imagine is the metamodern structure of feeling, so is this absolutist relativism or relativist absolutism, however you want to call it. And so is a shaming culture, right? So I think it's, I think those things mm -hmm. aren't mutually exclusive. They are all part and parcel for me of that same structure of feeling. And it all does tie in. I mean, I think Jody, that's why someone like Jody Dean is so important. That whole sensibility ties into an extent with neoliberalism, with capitalism, with a particular understanding of self and the world that cannot be seen in isolation from the way in which um, capitalism works. And so I just, that's, I think, my caution um, in terms of applying one-to-one Sure. sensibility sure. to a, a political program yeah um, but as said i and i think i told you this before i don't know enough about it and i'm i think i am interested in in work that that engages critically with for example the writing we've done but also other work other words that might disagree entirely or take it into a different direction but that tries to use it to create a vernacular of our world from which we can build something I'm not sure if it's my field to use it as politics. And, and also, frankly, I think I'm too, too much a child of postmodern, postmodernism to feel comfortable believing myself mm. in a new <laughs> political system. That's fascinating. I, I've, I'm intrigued by that because even like I think about David Foster Wallace articulating so much of the ideas of, of metamodernism and yet not really fully ever you know, enacting them in his own work. No. It's sort of a theoretical thing, but then it's sort of like, like Moses, I think he, both Greg Denver and I use this example about him where he sort of leads people to the, to the quote unquote promised land, but never kind of goes through uh, himself. I, I also wonder though, I mean, do you feel like it's, it's pertinent to retain a sort of academic distance from these uh, newer instantiations of metamodernism um, or, or do you, would would you consider sort of engaging these communities and these these discourses in some direct way? Um, no, I mean I think it's perfectly it's it's wonderful that people are are finding you know uh, 
fertile grounds in these writings and in these observations and managed to use them for directions, which I'm sure can be wonderful or can be terrifying. Um, but I mean, that's, that's in a way it's, I do think there is some academic distance there, right? Where I think it's not what I am supposed to be doing in my job. It's also not what I'm good at, right? I, I don't think it's my skill set. I don't think it's where I want to go. I don't see that necessarily as, as how do I say this in the best way? It's not, not what I'm interested in. Sure. I'm interested, yes, in progressive politics, but I think there's people who can probably do that better than I can, which is not to, you know, not a cop out. It's not to say I don't want to want to share or want to join in the problem, but I think within this project, that's not where my strength should lie. Hmm. Well, and, and I'm also to broaden this, uh, a little bit when I'm thinking of some of these metamodern communities, it's not just the political progressive, you know, programs that I'm thinking of either. There are also folks that are sort of using these ideas and, um, bringing them into conversation with, uh, you know, new forms of spirituality, which is actually in some ways is really what I'm particularly interested in. Um, I mean, my familiarity with metamodernism begins with, with your work, um, and so now it's sort of like there's this uh, new infusion of ideas from groups like integral, you know, theory folks and stuff like that, who based in Ken Wilber's work back in the 90s and early 2000s, were already trying to, in some ways, do something post postmodern. Um, but those those kinds of streams interacting and then people kind of using these Wilbur ideas through an ironically sincere lens and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I guess just to make the point that when I'm talking about these new kind of emerging communities around the term metamodernism, uh, not just meaning a, po a political program, because I also think of, say, again, Lena Rachel Anderson's work, who's using these more from the perspective of pedagogy and building and uh, trying to find, you know, ways of incorporating, uh, you know, indigenous wisdom and traditional wisdom. Um, and, and I guess that's sort of what strikes me is that yeah, there, there seemed to be this sort of this flourish of interest. Um, and maybe it is just the veneer of a term, or maybe there really is a deeper structure of feeling that's uniting these different communities. Um, but um, I've just been intrigued to kind of see uh, that happening. And yet, you know, I'm, 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 I kind of sense a sort of a sort of reticence, and maybe it's an academic distance, maybe it's just a, you know, lack of you know, interest or, or familiarity. Um, but the fact that there's this sort of burgeoning energy and, and uh, inertia momentum amongst certain groups calling themselves either metamodernist or explicitly employing that term in a, in a meaningful way. Um, I just, you know, I couldn't help but get your, get your perspective on it all. I mean, it's more, you know, the moment that people like Linda Hodgson or, uh, or Hassan or Jameson, when they write about postmodernism, of course, that also influences political discussions, right? That, you know, it goes into common language and common vernacular. And so on the basis of those observations, because they were also observations, right? Whether it was literature or photography or um, sort of a more general cultural um, um, sentiment, those observations then filtered into political discourse. And so it's inevitable that the observations that um, make up much of meta, the metamodern uh, theories that I would, would suggest um, um, have been taking place, that they also filter into political discourse. I just think I have the academic distance, but it's also, right, it might be, it might be something that I feel affinity with, but I could also imagine that um, the the vernacular that Robin and Alison and I have been creating alongside people like yourself 
that that could fall into hands of people that I disagree with entirely, right? So it would also just seem for me in a way weird to then cherry pick mm. which of the political metamodernisms I find interesting. Because as I said, metamodernism was just the label for a set of developments. We were trying to give words so that we could begin talking about this shit together, right? That indeed that you can create a sense of a community to articulate stuff that we were feeling and perhaps didn't yeah. have the vocabulary to. And if that yeah. vocabulary is then used for all kinds of political purposes, then that is fine. But in a way, it's not my, sure. it's not, isn't my interest. And it, it is something that, yeah, that potentially also worries me. Yeah. So going forward from your own stance and your own, um, you know, uh, kind of focus on metamodernism, culturally speaking, and it's you know, uh, emergence and evidence in the arts. What, what in the context of talking about the development of metamodernism, um, where do you see it? Uh, well, I don't want to say where, where do you see it going necessarily, but where is your work taking you? I mean, are you still writing about metamodernism explicitly? Are you still, um, are you planning any more books or articles on the topic or is it something that even the term, are you seeking any distance from, or, uh, is it something yeah, where where what is the relationship of your work now to metamodernism no, going forward? No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not thinking distance from the term. I'm still. Uh, I'm still very happy that we also use this, uh, okay. this this terminology, and I still believe that it's this notion of metoxis is is a very useful one to understand to understand this movement, right? I, I think I don't know if you and I spoke about it, but we toyed with a number, double doctors, but. Peter Sloterdijk calls this, this thing, there's metastability, there's all kinds of terms that try to describe this weird sort of oscillation, but for us, metoxy was useful. So I think I'm still quite pleased with metamodernism. I'm also, I think it's also important to keep this notion of the modern and modernism in this label, right? There are people that say we shouldn't, and I agree politically. I think it'd be quite wonderful if we could set our sights on, um, on new models of coexisting and new models of meaning making that aren't beholden to the terrible histories that we associate with modernism and modernity, which include all kinds of colonialism and all kinds of totalitarianism and exploitation and systemic injustices and so on and so forth. But I do think, you know, we're not living in a vacuum. As you said, history, you know, it doesn't disappear, right? There's this layering and this sort of weird mixture of histories. And I think the spirit of the modern is still very much present there. So, no, I don't stand apart from that. Well, at, at the moment, I'm working on two books that aren't directly tied to metamodernism. But yes, I'm still interested. In, I mean, we are working on a new book. I mean, we have been for years. So working is a, mm -hmm. is a I think, is a big word. But yes. It's in the works. <laughs> Ellen, yes. Ellison and Roman and I have already, we've been talking about in any case. Uh, and I'm working on deptiness a lot, which is an offshoot, I guess, of metamodernism. It's a particular mm -hmm. principle of this metamodern structure thing that I have found very interesting from the beginning. This, I mean, and I think we share this probably, but this opening up of the metaphysical without actually ever actualizing it. For yeah. me, this is very interesting. Or this opening up of this recreation of the sensation of depth, of the possibility of depth, of the depth model without ever actually articulating it, right? Because if we think about postmodernism and whatever it is that comes afterwards, eco-criticism, affect theory, that is all about surfaces and surface signification, I think for very important reasons, right? And we think about the lows and the folds and we think about the plane of imminence. And so it's all on that same sort of, 
of level. And I, I, I think personally believe that this is probably the right way to go about it. And yet, if we look at the cultural phenomena, they don't seem to follow this sense of the surface. They are all looking again for behinds and beyonds, for secret conspiracies, for deep states, mm. for, right? And so I am very interested in those uh, reconsiderations of depth that aren't um, actualized and that often aren't, I mean, they don't exist, right? Often provably <laughs> false, such as in the case of Donald, all of Donald Trump's allegations. So I think for me, this is, especially now the pandemic and the, uh, the, the, the anti-vaxxers and stuff, this is quite interesting. So I'm interested in depthiness. So yeah. this is after those two books that hopefully I write this year um, that aren't, well, that aren't entirely tied to metamodernism, then that's my next project. I, that's actually a great segue because I also really wanted to talk to you about, um, you know, uh, religion, spirituality, metaphysics, as, you're, as you've kind of just touched upon, because, you know, human spirituality, it, it, it's a, it shows up in pre-modern culture, in modern culture, in post-modern culture, and, you know, I would say in metamodern cultural uh, production. Um, and I don't think I've ever read any, I well, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think I've read anything that you've written where you maybe explicitly touch on metamodern spirituality per se, but exactly what you're talking about in terms of this, this depthiness idea and the metaphysical kind of uh, move that's occurring there, I find as being distinctly a kind of metamodern move. And I've, you know, talked a lot about that, my whole after postmodernism thing on YouTube and whatnot is really kind of an exploration of that. But I'd love to get your thoughts on metamodern spirituality however you might see that manifesting or metamodern religion however you kind of think about those ideas um it, yeah uh it, it, are there phenomena that you see is kind of characteristically or distinctly embodying that structure of feeling in their spiritual uh, expressions i mean well no and also i think in a way i'm not the right person to talk to i think you yourself probably would be <laughs> <laughs> you would be better or Linda's work of course mm -hmm. would be, be very useful here so I'm in a way it's not my expertise I'm not the right person to talk to it but sort of generally speaking I think it's fair to say that in this new you know if you if you are in this wasteland where you feel that you know there's all this leftover stuff and you're trying to make meaning again I think it's very important or it's very obvious that different kinds of spirituality re-emerge right people are looking for meaning and they don't really know how to place it. A lot of the conventional frames of meaning making have been abandoned uh, or have been proven to be um, um, either untrustworthy or unfair. And so people are looking. People are going are looking everywhere to, to make to make meaning, to find meaning in their lives. And this could be by um, by uh, believing in all kinds of political charlatans who will tell you that your lives will be better uh, because of, but it could also indeed be in religion. It could be in, in crafts, right? I think many people, and I'm guessing you yourself as well, are finding some meaning in crafts, in very in tiny gestures that give you meaning, or they will find meaning in various ecological movements. But so people are looking for new models to make meaning. And by meaning making, I don't just mean meaning for the self, but also meaning for the world and for um, um, your and your kids' place in that world. So I would imagine that spirituality is a part of that. I do find it interesting that particular types of spirituality seem to be 
popular or more popular than they were. I mean, I, I am not so familiar with it, but this whole idea of manifesting and the secret <laughs> and that if you wish for something hard enough is definitely happening. Those seem to me to be quite interesting models of spirituality that are popping up mm. that I, I mean, personally think are ridiculous, but everyone has a right to believe what they want. But they also seem to be entirely in line, of course, with neoliberalism mm, and particular mm -hmm. ideas around that. Yep. But so I, I think it's, it's definitely a sign of the metamodern that we are returning to all kinds of, um, of spiritual modes. Um, and, and I understand that. And I can also imagine that it, it creates, yeah, that it creates useful bonds and communities. Um, but it is interesting, I think, to focus on what types of spirituality we are seeing. But again, I'm guessing you and, and Linda, amongst others, are working on that. Yeah, in fact, actually, we're going to be um, doing a, a panel at the American Academy of Religion in November on metamodern uh, religion. Oh, I'd be very, is that going to be online? Uh, it will. Yeah, I think. And I think you can still sign up for that. I think I'm allowed to say that. I don't think there's any secret to it. Um, but if no, there that's is very exciting. Yeah, it is. I'd be very really cool. thrilled to see. I mean, what do you think? I mean, I'm, let me return this question because I am certain you know more about this. Uh, well, I mean, gosh, what do I think? This is yeah, this is what I'm kind of, you know, passionately, you know, exploring and talking about and writing about thinking about. So um I think you're right. I mean, I, by saying that, I just mean I could go on and on and on. But um, uh, in brief, I think, yes, I think you're exactly right. I think that there's an urgency for meaning. Um, there's an, uh, a desire for depth. <laughs> and I think you're exactly right that people are looking for that in all sorts of places, including ideological uh, solutions, which are often wind up being broken. I mean, it's a common um, you know, notion that ideologies are in some ways just broken religions, or at least in some ways incomplete kind of religious frameworks. And uh, so I feel like in lieu of certain metaphysical ideas, which have been sort of seemingly discredited by the, you know, um, by the advent of all the ideas in modernity and post-modernity, um, that those options aren't really live options in the same way that they used to be for a lot of people anyway. And so there's an urgent looking around for alternatives. Um, and yet what I'm most interested in is how the ideas kind of that you discussed about metamodernism, whether it's ironic sincerity or this pragmatic idealism or this, you know, this, this, uh, this sense of trying maybe even in the, in the, in the awareness of inevitable failure, what it, whatever that, that sensibility is, but that when you apply that sensibility to a meaning-making project, um, I think that you get some pretty interesting things. And I think that the neo-romantic turn is also there. There's, um, there's a sense of, uh, of a longing for that uniting of the transcendent and the imminent in some kind of paradoxical relationship. And I think you're also right that you're seeing that manifest in a way that's sort of a, a new kind of transcendence that isn't a this world, other world kind of dualism, but it's more of a monistic, there's this world and whatever the transcendent is, it's somehow in this world or within or something like that. So that's just a kind of two cent answer for some of that. But th those avenues are the things I'm really um, passionate about exploring, not just descriptively, but also kind of prescriptively and enacting in some ways with my own writing. Um, so yeah, uh, but again, I could I could talk about about that at some length. That is interesting, right? It's it's not a see, it's exactly. I mean, it's not a beyondness, but it's a seeing almost sort of through this world. Yeah, I, I don't know providence. Or, I mean, it's very. It's also in a way, I guess, an old project. But it, that's it. Seems that seems to be quite. It is an old project in some ways, and I also see 
for me, yes, while you do see the resurgence of ideas like manifestation and whatnot, I think more compelling to me are the, the ways that mysticisms, ancient mystic, mystical ideas are particularly yeah. um, uh, kind of germane to this sort of a project because um, it's, it's usually in that mystical endeavor where the transcendent is seen as sort of an element of the, of the imminent or where form and formlessness come together. And, um, and yet also those mystical things, and I think this is key, and this is something Linda's work touches on a lot, is it's highly experiential. You know, gone are sort of the idea uh, days when you could kind of listen to a religious authority and just, oh, that's what the truth is. Now it's much more, I need to experience whatever the truth is and it needs to be, um, which I'm sure relates a lot to all of the epistemic, you know, anxieties that now exist um, that in probably in many ways relate to everything that you're talking about in terms of just, you know, what do we believe and how do we believe it? And, you know, um, so, yeah, I think that there's so many fascinating ways that our society is sort of grappling with these questions of what is truth? Um, how do I believe anything? Um, and, and what do I, how, what's the proper kind of mode of engagement with, with belief and with ideas and with truth in general, and all that's playing out in really messy and sometimes really fascinating and cool ways. That'd be my take. <laughs> No, but that's, I mean, mysticism, I think that's also, I'm also quite interested in that in contemporary art, because that seems to be an interesting way to, you know, to, to create these reverberations or to sort of open up the sense of possibility, right? Of if we have the world, I mean, this whole end of history thinking and all those modeling and algorithms, of course, they set the world on a particular course, or let's say X amount of courses, right? These are all the possible routes. And I think what's quite interesting to me about some of those new um, new movements, whether they are spiritual or artistic, is this idea of, okay, try, let's try to recalibrate. So let's indeed, let's not actually see what is a possible route out, but what's an impossible route, just to expand the horizon of possibilities that might also indeed lead to alternative political models, perhaps. So in that way, I'm also quite interested in it. But as said, I know very little about this. Um, and, and it ties in perhaps with what you asked me earlier, with the variety of more pragmatic uses of metamodernism today. I take it for something that is interesting. I'm, I'm honored that people are using the work at all. <laughs> I think on average, humanities papers are read by like two people. So I'm incredibly right. honored that people yeah. are engaging with the work at all. But it's, I think it's also good that that's maybe left for other people that are better equipped to deal with those things than I am. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm curious though. I mean, could you ever see yourself using your own, you know, model of metamodernism to interpret some of these, you know, uses of metamodernism, if it makes sense? I mean, one of the things that really strikes me about at least the Hanzi work, but in others too, is sometimes there's a very explicit sense of, uh, here are the ideas that, you know, Moylan and Robin van den Acker put forward about metamodernism. Let's use them to enact the way of sort of putting them into practice. So yeah. I think the whole kind of Hansi persona comes out of a, I'm being ironically sincere in talking about these things. And I'm also going to give you a kind of a, a grand political program and meta narrative here while also re retaining the sort of ironic distance from it. So it seems like a, an enactment of the ideas that are aesthetic, but also for this end. So I, it doesn't seem, I mean, yes, maybe engaging with them at the level of, do you think that they're right or wrong is maybe not the right approach, but it definitely, these things as cultural productions seem open to the realm of exploration using a metamodern lens. I would agree there. 
I think that what I know of them is that they are themselves metamodern in promoting a particular metamodern politics. Yes. Yeah. But again, I, I think, I hope you understand my caution. Oh, very it's much so. It's not necessarily yeah. a dismissal or something of anything that happens. I said, I'm very honored that people are, are using my work at all, but it's not a field of expertise that I have. And it's not a cop-out, but I think there's, there's enough people these days that are talking about things that they actually haven't studied mm -hmm. and making claims about things that they know very little about. Mm -hmm. And so I also think there's something to be said for trying to understand stuff that you actually, you know, you, you've been studying for mm -hmm. a while, right? That, that, that's your field. And so I'm honored, but it's not my field of expertise. Um, and if I would engage with it at all, it would indeed be in that way. Um, is it perhaps itself metamodern? Maybe it's also to be honest, maybe it's also just, it's awkward when you read stuff that you've read, written. Sure. It becomes a bit narcissist, I think, if you would. <laughs> I don't know. It feels narcissist to engage with it then again myself, right? Mm. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a healthy, healthy yeah. thing. Though it is intriguing, too, because when I think about some of the postmodern theorists, um, you know, there was definitely, there seems to be as sort of part of postmodern um, theorizing and critique a sort of inherently... Uh, let's just say that that is that academic distance wasn't always maintained. Um, and maybe that's, you know, again, not a not a good thing. But and also to your point, there are people and this might maybe you know this or maybe you're, uh, you know, saddened to hear it. But there are people who use metamodernism as a term that are on the far right that are trying to use it to, you know, they're not a particularly they don't really seem to have much sort of influence or sway, but there's still communities out there that are. So there's one of those things about when you. And put it's something... heartbreaking. I didn't right. know that. It's tremendously heartbreaking to hear. Sure. That. So that's you know it's it's like um, it's a it, 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 I think in some ways actually this does kind of come out of postmodern thinking that like you know the author as soon as they kind of put something out into the world is sort of then it's not really theirs anymore and people can use it um, as they will. And, uh, and so I think, yeah, it becomes difficult to, to probably navigate in what way, uh, you continue to engage with, with your kind of, uh, your, your thought children kind of once they exist in the world and, uh, uh, yeah. So, um, it's an interesting, you know, reality of, of engaging society at the level of trying to. I mean, I guess what I, I, I just always find interesting is the way that these these paradigms become themselves part of cultural production. I mean, I think you could even look at sort of once postmodernism was a term and people could kind of say study it in art school. Right. Then you get artists who are like, oh, OK, this is how you yeah. do this. Let me exactly. use my my yeah. my artist statement and say all the right things. And probably at that point, you you could argue that there's a certain kind of decadence that would set in um, as soon as something becomes kind of so highly self-reflexive that it's sort of an enactment rather than a, rather than just a spontaneous expression. Um, and yet it still is a reality that, that once these things are out there, they become part of the, the cultural conversation for people to use. Um, and then I guess that's, that's the open question is like, are they then amenable to the same, paradigm of analysis that generated them or is there something kind of meta ironically about uh, what's occurring in that situation that you know is almost kind of demands the uh almost a development of a new paradigm to think about uh i don't know 
I, I, I hesitate to say anything like meta meta modernism because you know, these things could become really <laughs> ridiculous, but, but, uh, but there it is. <laughs> anyway, um, any, uh, any kind of closing thoughts? I know you've got to go soon on just sort of the future of meta modernism as a paradigm, as a, as a, as a cultural lens, as a structure of thought or a structure of feeling, um, or your own work. No, other than that, I think it's obvious that those fault lines uh, that that we, the Roven and I described in the 2010 article, and that um, that that all of the contributors, uh, both on the blog and then in the 2017 book, described, they seem to be hardening. So, mm-hmm. if we're thinking of metamodernism as this sensibility characterized by this oscillation, this both neither, this metoxis, then I think that that begins to be an increasingly tough and hardened tension. And so I think the, the fear is that that will snap or the fear is not the right word. Well, I mean, I'm saying fear because of course I'm thinking of, in this case of particular populist movements. And so I am afraid of, of, of that turn to fascism or whatever we could call it. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I don't know. I think it's, these are just very odd times. I read the other day that the Gulf Stream is disappearing, mm. which is, especially if you come from Holland, mm. this is not great, right? I yeah. live in Norway, not great. Yeah. So it's, I think those things will change everything once again. I do think, um, however, that they will reinforce, they will deepen this sense of desperation of an island to choose. Mm-hmm. Right. What do we what do we do? This sense of urgency, like, oh, fuck, here we are. It's all falling apart. Where do we go? How do we move knowing all that we do, having learned in school all that we have? How do you move from there? And so I think the the, the fault lines are hardened. They are solidifying, you might say, which may also mean they might break. And at the same time, they reinforce this sense urgency of desperation of where do we go? And so that would be my two cents. Yeah. One of the things that I know is sort of a, a meaningful way in to the conversation of metamodernism for people um, that I'm familiar with, I think of Jeremy Johnson, uh, Johnson, uh, Zach Stein talk about the time between worlds, the idea of the meta as being this between. And as you said, I mean, it's sort of a placeholder, you know, it's like, here's, here's what we're seeing. And here's a term to talk about these things, but it's not necessarily a program. It's not a solution. It's just a description. And, um, you know, that meta in some ways seems to encapsulate this idea that like we're between worlds. There's a, there's a modernity or version of it that we're kind of exiting precipitously and maybe falling off the cliff from, and we're going to land somewhere, presumably, but no one really knows where that is and what that looks like. Um, and so, yeah, part of that placeholder idea is talking about metamodernism, not just from what we're seeing, but sort of slightly trying to extrapolate, well, where, where might we be going? Um, but in, for now, we're sort of we're between answers. Um, but anyway, I, I think your work, well, I know this to be true has been super helpful for many people to think about the world and to try to get a sense um, of, you know, just having some, some terms, some phrases, some, some frameworks of being able to interpret um, the things that you're seeing 
Um, I know that obviously it serves an academic function of analysis, but it also, I think, in terms of the meaning-making desire too that we were speaking of a few minutes ago, um, it's very helpful. Um, and I think that to the degree that it does retain its connection to an, an academic kind of rigor and empirical reality, like, yes, this does accurately describe the world that we're living in. Um, I think it also has a kind of psychological just bolster of like, all right, well, there's some clarity there. So I think that um, I, I know I speak for, I'm sure, sure many, many people who just find that very much in your work and find it helpful. And uh, wherever we may be going and however much uncertainty there may be, it's at least, um, yeah, uh, edifying and, and, and fruitful to be able to situate ourselves a little bit better in this crazy world that we're in. And uh, I think uh, that your work really helps do that uh, in a meaningful way. So thank you for that. That's very um, humbling. And I am grateful, as I said, that people have read it at all. Yeah. It's not a given. <laughs> so I'm really grateful that people have read it at all. And also, it's nice um, to know what ship we're, uh, we're on uh, before we hit the iceberg. <laughs> um, at least we can say, well, this was, this was us. Yeah. Or, or hopefully maybe there's something of a Tolkien-esque U catastrophe that'll occur that all of a sudden the, the Eagles will show up and Hey, that was, that was good. But um, anyway, Tim from Moyland, thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time and uh, um, yeah, maybe we can do it again at some point. Um, I'm super excited to see uh, that, that book in, in the, in the works um, and uh, any other stuff that you're putting out. So is there anything uh, you would want to direct anyone uh, to who's watching this in terms of a website or stuff that you're putting out right now or anything? No, I mean, okay. no, I mean, I'm, as I said, I'm doing two books now and then next year, hopefully uh, the Deptiness book will be, uh, will be written, but uh, <laughs> and eventually the is a monograph. <laughs> But let's see. Um, okay. No, but thanks again so much for having me and um, for doing this and for having your wonderful series and those uh, those uh, splendid um, explanatory videos on YouTube, which thanks. I think are spot on. So that's really great work. Cool. And it's lovely to see you again, man. It's yeah, likewise, for yeah. sure. All right, my friend. Well, take care. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, Godspeed. Yeah. <laughs> take care.